Hello, welcome to the Mike Dominic Show. I am, as always, and intend to remain Mike Dominic. Today is the 1st of September. I can't believe it's September. So that's kind of neither here nor there, huh? Today I have Adam Dimitrik of Event Modeling. So this is an interesting concept. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of fair warning here. This is a, a meatier episode than usual, a little, little more data dumpy. There's going to be a lots of resources in the notes. I found myself actually listening back and looking up some of the resources after. It's great information, but it's it's event modeling is a different way to approach software development projects that, you know, if you're like me and you've been doing kind of more traditional agile or even back in the bad old days, waterfall-y kind of stuff, it's, it's going to bend your mind a little bit. And you're going to, you know, like just getting a few basic concepts is going to really change how you think about kind of structuring a project, how you should work through things. It's really cool conversation, really great concept. I'm actually going to be digging into it some more, and I'm sure Adam's happy for anybody to reach out to him to discuss it further. So yeah, it's it's going to be a little mind bending, but I it's really like you know like anything that's new and good and kind of a, a radical shift. It's it's worth taking the time. So with that said, the show is as always sponsored by the Mad Botter, my consulting company and soon to be software independent developer company meaning we're going to have our own applications for sale soon. We're application singular, so that's exciting. If you need any Ruby development done, we have a little bit of Ruby bandwidth uh, coming up in October. Let me know. You can go to themadbotter.com for that. You can find me at Twitter, at Dumanuko. And that's it. I'm not going to, you know, take any more time. Here's Adam. All right, Adam Dimitrik, how are you? Good, Mr. Michael Dominic. Finally, we get to record this. <laughs> After years of conversations, right? Literally, I think it was Literally three years, years that we had that. Three years ago, we talked about it. Yeah. So, first of all, I believe, and I no offense if I'm wrong to any past guests, I think you may be our first guest from Vancouver. Oh, so I feel honored. <laughs> I think it's an accomplishment, right? Yeah. Well, I'm so, sure you had Canadian guests, but maybe not Vancouver. Yeah, I, um, I'm sure we've had Canadian guests, but not Vancouver. I think we had someone from Montreal, actually, if I'm not... Or maybe I recorded that and didn't release it yet. I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, if I'm a first Canadian, that's even better. That is... You could be. <laughs> I, I forgot which order I released these in. So it shows you the uh, the great operational uh, professionalism going on here. Absolutely. <laughs> so you're the CEO of Adaptech Group, which is, in your words? Well, we're a group of companies, but primarily one company that does consulting and outsourcing, much like your company. Mm -hmm. Um, However, we do something a little bit different uh, to set ourselves apart in that we primarily focus on event-driven architectures, and we've managed to do that at the large and small scale, so including startups and um, and smaller initiatives, by making sure that uh, we do things with the right focus and not get distracted by a lot of infrastructure and heavy things like you might see out there, Kubernetes, hint, hint. (laughs) Okay, so this is why I wanted to have you on. For quite some time, you've been uh, talking to me about something called event modeling, and and you seem to be as advocate a fair term. Yeah, I think I coined the phrase because there was really nothing else to, you know, to call it. Yeah, event modeling is is an interesting thing. So this is your concept you came up with, and I know... um, it's funny because you reached out again after I had Jonathan Stark, uh, you know, the author of Hourly Building is Nuts, which for book titles is great. And you said yes. these things are have a relationship. I, maybe they first, do. So go ahead. What is that relationship? Well, billing by the hour is one of the worst things in the industry simply because it doesn't attach value to your work. And you, we're sort of looked at as 
as uh, monotonous uh, bricklayers, it's really hard to justify hourly rates with the plethora of different technologies we may use and our unique tapestries of experiences that uh, that do that. We kind of have to go in and say, well, I'm willing to do this job because it pays X per hour. And uh, in your previous podcast uh, on the subject, you know, it's really about what is the value of the work. So we come at that uh, value proposition from a different angle. We basically decompose any particular solution that we're going to implement into a series of state changes or state views. That we found was the proper granularity to get a velocity for how fast a specific team can develop. And upon an agreed price per piece of functionality as decomposed by state changes or or a variety of state views, we can then have a fixed bid, which means you free yourself from having to I guess, make an excuse of why your hourly rate is high or from having a client take advantage of you if you set yourself as a a price that's too low and you're going to have a tough time making rent and people are not going to be really happy working for that that rate if if you have a whole, uh, you know, a a number of people working with you. So so that ability to, to be able to get the elusive accurate estimate, which is something that's really hard to do in software, We've attained that, at least for our team, and we're trying to teach that throughout the industry and through consulting with various different companies. We would love for them to be able to learn from our experiences with various other clients as, as to how they could do that for themselves. So we're actually a really bad consulting company. We like to put ourselves out of work <laughs> by, <laughs> uh, by showing them the tricks of the trade. So let's let's take a kind of like a life cycle of a, of a bid, right? Let's say... I'm, you know, I'm calling you guys up with like Adaptech. I need some help. Um, I want to build, insert weird website here, right? Or application, whatever. Mm-hmm. What I would expect back in a more TNM, uh, for those who don't know time and materials, right? World is you're going to ask me for a bunch of requirements. I'm going to come back with something that's probably incomplete or wrong. Mm-hmm. And you're going to give me some, you're going to say, Mike, that's 250 hours. And yeah. I'll say, great. And then we're going to hit 320 hours and I'm going to get mad at you. Right. Yeah. But, so but not only that, we're gonna we're gonna give you that ninety percent done, ninety five percent done, without really showing you anything working all along the way. <laughs> That's exactly. So, at what point in that process does event modeling change? Is it is it right in the beginning where I'm handing you a you know a word document with specs, or is it when yeah, when does that it, path diverge? The path starts um, almost immediately. Event modeling is quite. I guess, uh, easy to understand for both technical and non-technical. It actually makes that bridge between the tech and non-tech quite easy to navigate. I know that sounds alien to a lot of people because we've swam through uh, ourselves through many, I guess, variety a variety of, um, of requirements documents and what different clients think a complete requirements document is. Uh, so what event modeling really is, is coming up with a movie script and a storyboard for your movie. And the movie is what success looks like for you at the end of, let's say, in a year's time or six months' time or three months' time, depending on the size of your project. We basically make a storyboard for the movie that is the success of someone using your system or a set of actors and users uh, using your system. So at its very core, the two most important things in an event model 
I'll get in, into the reason why they're important, is, uh, is having a set of screens that each user will see decomposed by the smallest change that they can see in terms of uh, even submitting data or viewing data, the input outputs of the system, stretched over time by example. And underneath, really calling out the events, this is the event-driven part, as to what happens in that story. So if someone has a registration screen and they hit the register button, there's a registered user event with the pertinent data, Joe Smith and uh, at AOL.com or whatever it may be as their email and um, and a password, etc. cetera. Uh, and then of course, uh, this doesn't need to be done from left to right. And if, if the client doesn't really have an idea as to some of the details, we don't want to waste too much time. We want to jump into the middle. So while registration is pretty easy to, to talk about, we really want to get into why they're building the system and jump into the very middle, such as uh, my example that I keep giving. Well, there's many, but uh, the one that I continue to go back to is uh, we're going to, you know, you're the client and you want to automate your hotel. And um, the competitive advantage you're going to have is that you're going to have, you know, the cleanest hotel. And this is, I swear, I came up this before COVID. This has been a running <laughs> example about having the cleanest hotel and uh, our business premises that people are willing to pay a premium of, let's say, market research has shown 20% uh, rate increase if they can uh, see a third-party audit of that hotel and uh, the reports, uh, the hotel pays for a third party to, to come in and be a secret shopper and do swabs on surfaces and things like that. Things like this, and then publish this on a public-facing website with links from the Bear Hotel going there to see what their latest uh, results are. So let's say that's our our core business differentiator. Well, certainly the the workflow steps, the how we change state in the system, and what information we see on an event model, we would concentrate on uh, the room cleaning. Uh, the room schedule, the third-party submission, and I guess the event of being notified that a secret shopper has uh, actually come in and the results are back. Those are the important events in the workflow through our system. So we would concentrate in the middle of the workflow there and work outwards to the beginning, the prerequisites, such as having people sign up properly, all the way to the end, which may be payment and them rating our, our hotels, you know, their hotel stay particularly how cleanly they found it to be, uh, you know, the the state of the hotel room and how satisfied they were uh, with feeling safe. It used to be that this this funny example was catering to germaphobes, but I think now we can safely say this is uh, going to cater to a much larger audience. Yeah, I think that went mainstream. <laughs> yeah, it's gone mainstream. So it should have actually done this in real life <laughs> rather than use it as an example. <laughs> I would be, I, I'd be fairly well off now. But yeah, so so essentially event modeling is talking about a storyboard with an example of, um, let's say, Joe Smith, that's the... A hotel guest, you know, another name, maybe Brad, who's the hotel manager, and maybe the health inspector, even though we may not actually write the system that's that's doing the actual, you know, swabs and are the secret shopper, we still want to show the events of when they came into the scene as actors, so that we know how our system is, um, how our system is being used in that time. So does that kind of make sense that we want to go with an example of let's pretend this system is, has been working for an entire year and with the example data to basically show what the system does? We really want to have requirements as something that we can on a much 
much lower detail, go in and say, this is how it's going to work. And the only way that we can get a real price estimate that's realistic is by understanding along with the client that they are what's called information complete. And that's one of the other advantages of the event modeling exercise is that it can be done from the very beginning to actually collaborate with your client to talk about why they need a certain piece of the system and how that's going to interact with their users. So as you can see, it already has the UX UI piece built into it, not just some UML type of diagrams about what data is going where. The data is incredibly important because we do have the data in there to basically understand that we're data complete. In other words, we're not making up a data point from somewhere in the middle and we can't trace it back to where it came into the system. I mean, for those that are technical, it's really like a sideways sequence diagram from UML with some UX UI put in so that people can see what the users are seeing as we go through that quote unquote sequence diagram. But also most importantly, the meat of the sequence diagram is removed. In other words, everything between the UI and the state persistence is removed because that's the how and that's when we get into that. This is why UML is not a big thing in these kinds of situations is because UML tends to mirror the implementation. And that's sort of like going in and implementing the system anyway uh, by having you know, a, a rectangle for a class and, and some sort of an interface with a method specified. Those are details that development's going to take care of. But what's important is something that Fred Brooks talked about well, back in the late 60s in the Mythical Man Month, is that if you show me your tables, I'll understand how your system works. If you just show me your, your, your flow diagrams and your, and your logic, I'll continue to be mystified. But if you just show me your tables, I'll know exactly what your application does. And it's this attention to state that allows us to really understand what a system is doing. And by making it user-friendly, yet uh, be something that's, that's a, a good enough level of specification for actual implementation, we build that bridge between business and tech. So the important part, again, to how this is not like a sequence diagram, it removes that how piece. Like, I don't care how your for loops work, et cetera. I just know that between, you know, 22 seconds in and 23 seconds in, there is a state change and it is concretely this. And we have these really strong contracts on the workflow and sequence of state changes or when a view of state is changed. So those are the important pieces. And through, uh, you know, the last, uh, I guess I've been doing event-driven architectures as the only way to develop since uh, 2008 when I got to work with uh, CQRS. The CQRS guy himself, Greg Young, he came up with uh, all of these things that are now used at Netflix and, and LinkedIn and other places, how large companies scale. He, he's the guy that, that uh, came up and coined those phrases and really focused on on this event-driven architecture as a mainstream way of doing application development, uh, great and small. So I've learned from him in 07 and 08, and since you know 2009 was the first production system that I put out that was event-sourced and event-driven and all those things. And in that time, I really discovered that looking at systems from the event-driven side really is kind of like understanding a matter for being made of atoms. We kind of, I've, to, for myself, I've seen that, wow, this is the granularity that is ubiquitous through information systems. Notice I don't say programming. I talk about information system 
automation because we move away from the implementation detail, yet we can still have people implement and be happy that what I've given them is good enough for them to implement. And they're really happy that they're autonomous because that one step of having, let's say, uh, the room being uh, cleaned and a specific uh, you know, checkbox being checked by the cleaning person on their iPad or whatever they have with them, that that is done. That's one step that I know I can give to anyone. And if it's a Ruby coder or if it's a C-sharp coder, right. I really don't care. We've kind of approached this also from a polyglot way because you know these in our meetup that we have you know twice a week i can constantly go into the idea that i want it to be accept, um, accessible to anyone from any stack and what's nice is i can have a docker container for each stack and if you have you know three developers all of them doing different technologies you could have them work on the exact same automation for this hotel room and um, the, the thing that's tying them together is just the storage of events underneath and perhaps maybe some uh, some common templating for HTML to, to keep them from rewriting the same menu for each right. of their screens. But other so than that, their stacks exist in a Docker container and they're all coordinated through maybe an Nginx uh, routing scheme for what page is going to be displayed and they can basically go from you know, registration that's done in C sharp to to some other piece where they're booking the hotel in uh, in Ruby, and it works seamlessly because the thing that ties them together is that state. And the other thing is, event modeling really is about that small design up front that in agile we we talk about what we never really do well. And this small design up front has to be good enough to get rid of what we call a lot of rework. And this gets into the part that you're asking about is like, how does this give you that constant cost that you can do a fixed cost simply because there's no rework. When we get an event model, we have an allocation for all the pieces of state that we need to uh, store along the way. So unlike Agile, where you go and you have emergent design through test-driven development, you're constantly going back and changing something because well, that user table now needs like an authentication code because we're doing the verification step. So you have to go back to the initial insert statement and acknowledge that there is another column in there now that you need to be mindful of, right? And that's a simple example. And I'm sure there's another way to, to get around it, but this becomes a harder and harder thing to do. And, uh, and so by elaborating the system through event modeling, we really do have that blueprint for the application so that we don't have to go back. Um, if we built houses this way, it would be ridiculous for us to realize suddenly that we need a second floor halfway through the project. We have to tear down all the walls because now they have to be supporting That's walls. bad? <laughs> right? So, so, the, so let's, that's, <laughs> let's jump back a little bit, right? Because there's sure. a lot there. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's definitely something that I could do an entire week's workshop on. <laughs> well, you do have a lot of content about it and it's, yeah. it's definitely worth a look. So, so I think there's a, a, a concept because you're so used to it that you take as fundamental and just like, yeah, so we look at it this way. That is actually, at least when I, when you first sent me your stuff and I looked at it, kind of the mind blowy thing. And that's treating the software system or whatever you're going to build as though it were like a, a, a stage play, right? You're focusing not on the components. Oh, I need Postgres. Oh, I need Rails. Oh, I need whatever. It's mm -hmm in your hotel, right? I have the customer, I have the hotel manager, I have the maid, I have the uh, bell captain, right? Yep. And looking at it from their perspective of where they touch or interact with the system. You know, Adam, I think that's actually more radical than you think it is, to be honest <laughs> with you. Right? I, and you're used to it, right? You've been doing it since 08, but 12 years later, that sounds 
that's interesting to me. Like to me, that would be the fundamental change. If you know I or someone else were to adopt this tomorrow, that would be the biggest change in in my entire process. Yeah, it's a. I guess I do take it for 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 granted. And I, I guess the other big difference is that um, where clients feel weird is that we make them work, right? Because a lot of there's, there's, that. So, there's a lot of this mentality that you're going to hire a company or a developer, you're going to throw something at them. And they magically will give you what you want exactly, <laughs> right? It's kind of an unfair expectation because these genius coders will figure out what you're thinking, <laughs> the level of requirements that sometimes are given. That's kind of like what's expected, which is a little ridiculous. So collaboration is the key piece. And I think, as you mentioned, having the actors and the users as you know the, the main points of getting that story across is really key. And there's another subtle point about the storification of this is that as humans... Let me just, let me just stop you there. Yeah, the actors sure. and the users. So is the user not a type of actor? No, they are. They're, they're interchangeable. Okay. There are places yeah. where we add some automation. And so we think of... I like to personify some things like uh, what you would certainly see in Bash scripts for batch processing or for, for sure. reactive extensions or any kind of thing that reacts to the system as an automated system like process payments for these people or whatever... I like to personify them as being, this is the rope, you know, this used to be done by hand, but we're just going to stick a robot symbol right here. That's a system that's doing something, but we're going to give him a face. It's a little robot with little mechanical arms. And what a person used to do there, um, let, let's say back in the days before computers, it was the it was the mail room where you're sorting the mail or whatever for sure. which department got what. We personify, and that actually is a huge because even in UML, this goes back to Grady Booch and all these fine people that came up with UML, that sometimes an actor in your system is another system. It was a fine point in UML that they said you can put another system as an actor at the beginning of a sequence mm -hmm. diagram or, or wherever. So, yeah, definitely we have some of these personifications, and that makes it relatable. That way I don't have to talk to someone about, well, we're using, you know, this fabric or whatever else we may be using from the technical side. I never want to alienate people. Um, the other thing is that event modeling is really simple. It has really just four, you know, two core patterns for input and output, and then just a slight variation of those two patterns when you're talking about input and output between two subsystems, not something directly with a, with a user. And so the simplicity is really the thing that makes event modeling adaptable because I don't need someone to read I don't need an entire organization to read domain-driven design and hexagonal architecture or ports and adapters and uh, use case management, you know, uh, use case stuff. Uh, I, I don't know. There's many things. There could be a stack of books that's, you know, a right. meter high that you would say you'd need to really study to be really good at, you know, automating information systems. Event modeling makes the preference that you don't. That That's actually really bad because to get everyone on the same page with so much material is a humongous task. You'd be lucky if you if you got everyone on the same page in a year. So by having event modeling as something that's very small, very simple, yet is able to accomplish the same things, you get rid of that onboarding problem, even with clients. Like if I go and sit down with someone for lunch and take a paper napkin out because we have a great idea and, and a pen, we can do a very quick event model just with screens and events, right? The complete model is really uh, screens, events, and then identifying the inputs with commands and identifying views of, you know, uh, maybe which rooms to clean as a view in our example. And those four bits really make up the elements that we then apply these patterns, these four patterns on top of. 
And there's some very simple rules, such as an event can only be generated by a command. These views can only be populated by events. So we have kind of a cadence which gives you a nice sine wave that shows input and output, like a dolphin swimming through water, diving in and out of the system, in and out of the ocean of where the input and output is. So this nice kind of cadence that you have in terms of how information flows in the system is really nice. And the fact that you're dealing with example data along the way, you're talking about someone actually booking room 103 and this person actually cleaning that room before that person goes up and gets uh, gets settled in there. You're having, you're like, you're reading a novel about what's going on. You're seeing real data. So it's highly relatable. Yeah, there's about a million points I'd like to make. And I know we have a short time. So <laughs> it's, it's really hard to cram all the benefits of doing this into one thing. But the key is simplicity so that you're not spending a year teaching someone. You can spend 15 minutes teaching someone and then you can get going and actually use it, right? You know, things like the Domain Driven Design Book, they're beautiful and great works uh, that will help you. But getting through the Blue Book from Eric Evans takes a long time to to just read, but then to understand right. takes a long practice. So we want to shrink those. It's going to take you a month to just, you know, digest the book down to it's going to take you 15 minutes to read the article and start to follow these simple rules to give you the cadence, to give you the velocity that's dependable. I love it. And I also like, shameless plug here, that my Rabot reporting automation product could be an actor on your stage. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is absolutely. interesting though, right? For folks yeah. selling like enterprise software uh, automation solutions or SaaS solutions that, well, I mean, not to be a shameless sales dude here, but you could totally form a, a play, so to speak, right? An, an event model mm -hmm. with your solution in it. Obviously, mm -hmm. with the goal of helping the uh, the end customer, but I think it might. You know, a lot of consulting companies have the dream of becoming either par product companies or full product companies, and most of them don't do it. Yeah, um, I almost feel like this is a, you know, the first step of a long journey, right? Oh, it is. But the yeah. second steps have started, and so unbeknownst to me, people have been starting to automate event modeling, and in fact. A bunch of people that were working with Capital One started a company called uh, Evidence Systems. And uh, Bobby Calderwood is, is now a great friend, but he surprised me last there month you by go. saying, Adam, you know, you don't have to use Miro. We've made proper event modeling canvas, right? And uh, you can drag and drop the events and the commands and the UI pieces very quickly. And it'll allow you to only make the right connections. And guess what? We can even hit a button and generate boilerplate code for most of that stuff that you're going to do anyway, the boring, repetitive stuff. Because one of the other things about doing these patterns over and over again, these, these four simple patterns I mentioned, that gives you great cadence when you're developing. I want my developers to copy-paste, but I don't want them to copy-paste Stack Overflow. I want them to copy-paste the previous command handler or previous event handler and just change the contents of them. Because... It, like Linus Torvald says, software should be boring. It shouldn't be exciting and unpredictable. It should be boring and predictable. And that's all we're doing. You know, we sometimes treat, this industry treats every problem like a brand new science experiment. But really, we're just automating yet another insurance company. We're just automating yet another hotel or cafe. It's really the same problems being solved over and over again. But I think the trick was that while these individual businesses are different snowflakes, they're made of water, which has the same molecule. Now, that is a great metaphor. We kind of started getting powerful enough microscopes or 
worked enough with snow and snowflakes to understand that it's made of some of these very similar materials at the very base level. And so in information system, that systems, that happens to be state transitions and state views. And when, so this was a big change for me. We basically changed the entire company to say we're only working on fixed costs if we understand how many state transitions there are and how many views of that state there is. And so by doing so, we put our company on the line. We said, we're only going to work this way. We don't want to get into the TNM, 90% done, 95% done. The arguments about, oh, you have so-and-so working. I don't think they're worth this much per hour. I never, ever want to go back to that. I really want to just see people happy with the fact that they asked for these features. They agreed to this price and the quality was never an issue, right? So the fixed price has an interesting caveat because what you can do, well, I mean, what we do is we guarantee the accuracy. If the event model says one thing and you get the solution does another, you get that fixed for free. We specified that together. That's part of the handshake. I told you you're going to get this. And if you get something else, we guarantee that that's fixed for so free. very similar to Jonathan Stark's uh, philosophy. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Right. And uh, But the interesting thing is, is that you can now hire people of a very wide range of experience. Because if I hire someone that's junior and it takes them, you know, a week to do one of these command handlers, and, you know, we call them slices. We slice up this event model vertically. And so from this screen, you hit a command. It stores an event if it's successful. That's one slice, right? That this, The screen, that particular state of the screen, at least if you're sharing HTML, fine. But that particular state of the screen, when you hit that button and that actual event being stored, that is yours to keep. And you're not done until you satisfy both sides of the contract as to you're taking, you're making use of the information on the left-hand side of the previous state and the events that happened before. That's your preconditions and your post conditions. You're leaving an event that changes the state into some desired uh, outcome uh, so that the subsequent uh, slices work, right? So, and you can always go back to the event model to check, you know, either visually or programmatically, your uh, unit tests will say whether, you know, this actually happens or not. But if this junior person makes a mistake, they're simply required to go back and fix it for free because they already got paid for that piece. Now that starts to unlock some different things because if you have a junior person that wants to learn, they can learn on the job and still get paid. Obviously per hour, their rate isn't as great, but they're learning. Or if someone wants to switch stacks and learn something else, they can do that too. And they understand that learning something, they'll slow down a bit, but as soon as they get you know better with it, they'll keep going fast. And how do you keep keep out the bad actors? It's like, oh, great, Adam, I'm going to take advantage of you by just plowing through 50 of these slices in a week. You're going to give me a check for 100K, and I'm off to Mexico, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> even though they're done badly. So, no, obviously, the reality of that is if someone is burning through stuff really quickly, they're dropping things. They're not being careful just because they want to make more money. So what happens is that the following weeks, they really don't have time to spend doing new work because they're contractually obligated to make the things they already wrote adhere to the event model. So it's a it's the right carrots and sticks for going to your ability and not going faster. So and not at the expense of the client, obviously, because they want a good solution that still does what the event model said that this whole system was going to do. Right. So hopefully that um, gives you a really good idea of just the dynamics of this. And we've done this with people that were both junior and uh, both people that wanted to switch to, you know, to a technology. A good example is of, uh, you know, one guy was coming in from Java background, but our, our default stack at that time was Node.js. 
and uh, React. And he's like, oh, man, you know, I'm, I have many years, you know, over a decade of experience, but it's mostly in Java. Can I, I, I but I want to work with you. This sounds exciting. I, I love this stuff. And we said, sure, of course. You know, I haven't done an, uh, an interview in, in years because this is a self-correcting system. I, there's no reason for me to say no to someone, right? So for diversity, et cetera, all the subjectivity of hiring someone and the quality pieces just are out and it's really just about the work. So it's actually on the human side of, of computing where we have a lot of, you know, imposter syndrome and uh, a whole bunch of inequality that we're battling. This really does give you a level playing field where none of those bad actors from the management side can really put their power over someone. It's like, hey, I, I built my slice. It does what it says. Pay me, right? And one of the reasons that that works is because there's no rework or very little of it, right? Um, we don't have that emergent design like we keep everything else about testing but we don't want emergent design we're going to say that design is to be done with the event model not through the act of coding we want the design to be collaborative involving non-programmers that's really a better way to do it and by having the design done we remove the the rework part and this is where your code reviews start to look at from a different angle because now i really don't care that that junior did a bad job with that slice as long as the sla is met and that the state is good you know, and there's no other security issues, that's fine. I really, you know, maybe <laughs> they indented, you know, three for loops and they could have used this link expression or whatever. I don't care. If there's a problem eventually or that slice gets replaced with another one, it's paid for, someone else will do it, maybe even in a different language, but I'm not going in there diving through their code because all I'm doing is saying, does can I just replug a better slice in that piece of the event model? If the contract says it'll work, it'll work. So that's you know, we don't have to walk on eggshells about code quality, code reviews, and, you know, a lot of the traditional sort of mechanics of running an agile shop kind of go out the window. We don't have stand-ups because we really, we always know what the state of the system is. We see which slices have been done and that we can demonstrate them working. We go back to that working software is the really the only way to, to track progress. So a lot of the ceremony that's been built around Agile, we just don't do or don't require it to be done. Now, our clients still do it, so it can easily plug into those, but hopefully the clients see where, you know, that's kind of superfluous now, and they can just say, oh, you know, we don't need to do that anymore. The retros, well, we're doing the same thing every time now because we're just doing these slices, so there's very little for us to gain from doing these uh, retros. And so they can start to adjust and really tailor their process to exactly how they're building their system. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Adam, I ask two questions at the end of every show. Sure. Are you ready? I'll give you the hard one first, because I, th I think you know what it is. <laughs> uh, what question did I either not know or fail to ask you that I should have asked you? Oh, there's, I think going into the roots of why this works, I think we failed to go over why event sourcing and CKRS are the atoms that kind of make up information systems and how Greg Young's work and Fred Brooks' uh, work, all really the mechanical stuff, but we just don't have time. So I don't think you failed to ask me those. I think we could talk about this for, you know, a whole day or a whole week. Uh, when, uh, the, when does the book come out or do you not know? I'm aiming for the end of this year. I've been really working on it uh, for the last two years, but uh, the big caveat in this is that I event Modeling is really at home to people that are already doing event-driven architectures, but mm. that's really just 5% of the people out there. Yeah. And I really wanted event modeling to be used by everyone that's even doing traditional 
develop. And I think this goes back to our conversation three years ago where, oh, well, Adam's kind of doing a specific type of development. Well, that's a problem because we end up in an echo chamber and I can sell event modeling to people that are just doing event-driven architectures very easily, but that doesn't help the world. So the next part of the book is really about event modeling for traditional systems. And on the website, I have a second article that talks about how you use event modeling for a traditional table-based system. And, you know, while you can't have some of these independent slices, at least you can trace where the where the coupling is. So if I need to rip out a part, I know that this particular field is shared with these other workflow pieces. And therefore, if I change it, I have an actual scope for that change instead of guessing as to which tests are going to fail. And well, hopefully I'll be done by, you know, next week and maybe I'll t-shirt size my estimate. No, I actually see exactly where that coupling is. So there's a tremendous amount of benefits for traditional systems when you do an event model for them and you're using the tables to talk about that. You still do the events because that's what's happening in someone's head. Like I registered, yes, I have put in a password and I put in my username that I want and my email. However, what gets stored is a salted hash of the password. You can show that, right? But you still want those events because that's the truth. That's actually what happened in the user's head. And so it's still incredibly powerful how the truth maps to our implementation that we, we may want to take, whether that's a Postgres set of tables underneath that share some things in a third normal form. So it's really key that this book actually shows event modeling as a benefit for, for information systems, regardless of your approach to architecture or technology or anything like that. And uh, that's been a very big challenge. You know, the book's about a year late or so because of it, but it's very important. I really didn't want the book just to talk to 5% of the of, of the information systems people out there, whether it's the management side or the implementation side. I want, I want this to be something that's going to help as many people as possible. And really just raising your head out of the water and seeing that you're, you're in an echo chamber was the big big highlight. And a, a lot of that came through posting this as a way to work well on Reddit and people saying, well, I don't work this way because, you know, you can have event streams that get too long and then it doesn't scale. And, you know, one-on-one questions I could argue about is like, why am I arguing with these people? Why don't I just show them how it works for whatever way they want to work? And it still does work. And it's, it's got a ton of the same benefits and it gives them also a, a better way to transition to better ways of working, et cetera. So the book is delayed because of that. But I think it's going to be, you know, many times over better because of, of how many people it can help. Well, I tell you what, when the book comes out, let's come on again and we'll, we'll go through kind of the introduction to getting started. Yeah, absolutely. But for now, the, you know, I, I really don't want. So here's the thing. I really don't want there to be a book because kind of be hypocritical to say that you need a book to understand it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the main article on eventmodeling.org is really what anyone needs if, if they if they want to get started. And I really don't want to belabor people in having to read a book to really understand how to do it. So the article is meant to be short. It's a it's a 10 minute read, but it gives you the basic building blocks and the best way to learn is by doing. And so just getting out there, whether it's one team that's kind of wants to experiment on a new product, whether it's, you know, a side pet project that you have at home or it's your startup, go ahead and read through it. See if you can follow it. And I'm betting that you're going to get a ton of value by being able to have that event model just to talk about it with, you know, who you're developing with, your clients, your managers, whoever it is. I think it'll be uh, a tremendous asset to being able to collaboratively discuss what your system does. Okay, great. And the easy question, what does your workstation look like in terms of uh, computer hardware and 
Oh, my favorite. You're, this is the part. Because, okay, we're both Linux nerds, right? So, <laughs> you know, and, and I know of you through Jupiter Broadcasting. Yep. And I've been listening to, you know, with biting my tongue a lot of times. Because I know the answer. You should be doing this. And, you know, <laughs> so I've had that listening through your podcasts and all that. But also, of course, the fact that, uh, well, let's start with the keyboard. I have a DAS keyboard, which doesn't have any printed keys on it. Um, nice. So it's, I think it's uh, brown keys for the nice click clacks and um and it's dvorak layout i forced myself in 05 in, in the middle of a contract to switch layouts don't ever do this um <laughs> i'm happy recording <laughs> yeah that's okay that contract's long gone i don't think those people work there anymore it's 2005 but i didn't charge them extra i just worked late hours because it just was so painful to type again anyway it was an exercise so my my rig is a desktop i have a dell xps 13 as a laptop that I haul around with me. It's the same one that Torvalds uses. In fact, I met Torvalds. He signed my laptop. Unfortunately, that laptop got stolen, so I had to have it replaced. Oh. But yeah, two years ago, I met Torvalds and got to talk about Git, which was awesome. The uh, Linux Summit was uh, in Vancouver, so I got to sit down with him for half an hour and chat, which was just brilliant. I wish I recorded it. Anyway, back to the uh, hardware. So I have an old gaming rig with like a 760 or some other kind of... Uh, NVIDIA card in it. My latest, uh, although I, what I really love is art. And so I, I got a latest uh, Wacom-like tablet with a, that's got a built-in display for drawing art, you know, drawing diagrams like you see in event modeling and things like that. And it's a Huion, H-U-I-O-N. And it's about half the price of a Wacom. But hey, guess what? Oh. It works with Linux. And so it's super awesome. It's got the, you know, shortcut keys on the side. It's got a stylus that, that you know, uh, senses the tilt of the stylus. So Krita works really well, pressure sensing, all that kind of stuff. And the back display. So it's, you're looking at what you're drawing. It's not one of these tablets that's on the side and you have to like look at your screen. So that's really exciting. So the laptop's the main one. I have another gaming rig that my son has uh, taken over for his gaming on Linux and dual booting for, you know, for for the peer pressure games that all his friends are playing. He's 13, so he's doing that quite a bit. Mm. So about three desktops that are all um, Linux, and one is half Linux, half uh, half of that. Um, for development, I'm an IntelliJ, JetBrains kind of guy. I like yep. being able to use the same uh, shortcuts across all the languages, Golang, C Sharp with uh, Rider, all those types of things. So You said Linux. Which distro? Initially, I did elementary OS. I have to have a huge shout out. I still support them on uh, on Patreon. Um, yep, I did that. Awesome. Actually, uh, I blasted away uh, Google Pixel to have elementary running as my actual, actual daily driver. Which, from, yeah, elementary. That's back in the day, like the original Pixel from Google. I yeah, so that's I use that. But uh, I fell in love with with KDE on KDE Neon for the customizability. Unfortunately, it's a little unstable for some of the things. I couldn't uh, get the ISO to, to boot off of the XPS. And I, the XPS I have, the Dell XPS, is the Sputnik one. And for some reason, it just wouldn't boot off the ISO. So I went to Kubuntu with backports for the Plasma. So I get the latest of Plasma on top of Kubuntu. So I use Kubuntu with a Latte Docs. So it kind of has that Mac-ish look. And I have that uh, nice mint green uh, monochrome theme to it. So... It's really a joy to use. Everyone that comes by my either laptop or, or any of these desktops, like, oh, what is that OS you're using? It looks so beautiful, right? So I love that. So all the, uh, you know, hashtag Unix porn stuff, I should send some in. But actually, I think I got the idea from someone's post. I'm like, oh, that's an awesome theme. Nice. And yeah, what I love is that the themes actually just, they, they really go through, like if you open up Inkscape, all the icons follow the theme. It's like, whoa, how do they do that? So the theming in KDE is just crazy. Everything is just 
goes all the way through to the smallest thing. So I open up Inkscape or some other thing like KDN Live or whatever, and all the icons in there are the same theme as the desktop. I mean, what? They they really are using that that uh, icon library really well and those assets throughout the whole thing. So, you know, KD Connect, sending, blasting stuff around. I use Nextcloud. We're all open source. So in terms of like some, you know, open source stuff to, to talk about how I run the company, we use Nextcloud for sharing stuff. I'm on Rocket Chat, all self-hosted. I replaced about, you know, five different SaaS offerings that were costing us 12 grand a year by a, you know, $46 a month server in Montreal <laughs> running Nextcloud and everything else we need. So in terms of, you know, downtime, we've never had any, we have uh, redundant servers for things like that. So, but we've been able to really own our data, which is really important these days. So we've kind of gone off of uh, the Slack and all the other companies that really want your data and really want to control your day and we're on our own terms. So we love open source. We Our primary operating system for development is all Linux. A few of our uh, key guys have recently switched flavors from Ubuntu to Kubuntu as well. They're liking the KDE thing. I know this is political, <laughs> so I'll stop right there. Um, but uh, Just don't mention package managers and we'll be all right. Yeah, let's not go there. I, I make it work. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Adam, it was great having you on and uh, look forward to talking to you at the end of the year. And we always hang out on Twitter and stuff. So where can yeah. we find you? Absolutely. Well, it was a, a pleasure to, to get together and chat like this. I'm always excited. And these things are never long enough for me. Like I said, I could talk about this for weeks on end. So thank you so much. All the best. Stay safe, stay in, safe. in the States and uh, all the best to your family. And uh, we'll That's see each other online. Yeah. See each other online. And uh, folks listening, all his links, his Twitter, everything that was mentioned is going to be in the show notes for you. So you don't have to, you know, rewind and try to find it. Yeah. Adam, take it easy. Thank you so much, Michael. Bye. Bye.